Since 1805, Freeman's has been part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's hosts many departmental and single-owner auctions throughout the year and are always accepting consignments of suitable works across auction and collecting categories. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house, sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you wherever you are. Hello, and welcome to Curious Objects, brought to you by the magazine Antiques. I'm Ben Miller, and uh, my guest today is Ethan Lasser, um, who is the chair of the Art of the Americas at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Um, but I should say that um, his his interests and expertise is actually pretty broad-ranging. Um, he and I have actually done some business together um, involving antique English silver, um, among other things. So, uh, um, But we're actually talking about... Um, American art today. And um, there's a really interesting character uh, that um, is someone some of you may be familiar with already, uh, but this was actually a new name for me, um, which reveals my ignorance of, uh, of Americana, I'm afraid. But this is a a um, potter named, uh, conveniently, Dave the Potter, um, or also known as uh, David Drake. And Ethan, I'm, I'm excited to have you on to talk about uh, this um, this uh, great American craftsman and the really fascinating history of his um, his work and his uh, you know he he was born a slave and actually um, survived the Civil War but uh, you know the most of his work that uh, survives is the product of um, uh, slave labor, uh, which makes it quite an interesting and, and rich subject for conversation and a, a good platform for diving into a little bit of um, American decorative arts history. Um, so, Ethan, thanks uh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's good to talk. And I actually, you know, before we dive into um, to David Drake, um, I want to just ask how things are going for you. Um, up in in Boston, um, and and how things are going at the museum? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been more than two months now. So on March twelfth, we uh, like so many people made the you know decision that we were going to close, and I think most of us thought we'd be back in a month. And so uh, my desk at work <laughs> is probably a bit like a a, a scene from some lost tomb with all the papers <laughs> spread. Uh, and, uh, here we are, you know, uh, more than two months later. And, um, I think it's been, I've never been away from, um, the art from a collection for, for this long in my whole professional career. And that, that part's been hard, I think, to be away from my colleagues and, and to be away from the galleries. But I have to say that, yeah. you know, over the, over the weeks and months, we've really come together as a staff and, um, have all these conversations with with people who are missing the art as much as I am, and it's it's sort of gotten bigger and more uh, resonant in my imagination, and and um, that's been a, a nice mm. part of this is uh, hard it hasn't faded from view at all, and you know we're just at the point like I just before getting on with you we've uh, started to think about uh, we were just in a in a Zoom meeting which seems to be my life these days thinking about 
what our reopening is going to look like and what we're going to offer and how to make people feel safe and what will the city want from us. So the conversation shifting to the future. Is it safe to say that you're, you don't have anything um, approaching a timeline for reopening yet? I mean, no, it's such a shifting target. Like we're kind of eagerly uh, watching our colleagues um, in Asia and Europe and uh, some museums in Germany just opened this week and trying to understand sort of what, what their visitors are, are uh, like and who's coming and um, what we can learn from them and how we can plan accordingly. But yeah, we don't, uh, we, we, we were originally thinking July and I think we're now thinking the fall. Yeah. Well, and so what, um, in the meantime, you know, while you're confined to sort of distance learning and on online viewing and collections, um, what is the museum up to? I mean, how are you, are you still doing curatorial work in terms of, um, you know, research and preparing exhibitions and that sort of thing? And are you, um, are you welcoming visitors for online events? And yeah, um, yeah, we we're, we're, we're definitely staying busy. Somehow it feels, uh, you know, in the beginning, I think we were all trying to get our feet and our heads around what this would be about. Now, now it almost feels like uh, it's getting too normal <laughs> to be to be here <laughs> yeah. uh, at home. But to to answer your question, we we are um, doing events and uh, trying to keep um, the collection alive, even from a distance through through conversation. And that's why I'm so excited to do this because I see this as as a way of keeping the collection alive. Uh, we're you know, we're planning, we're, we're rethinking our schedule, we're rethinking um, and refocusing on what we can do with our collection. I think one um, uh, change that will come out of COVID and just the uh, economic realities of the moment is uh, more of a focus on uh, a move away from the big international loan shows for, for some time and more of a focus on, on what we can do um, with our own collections. And so we've all been thinking and uh, planning and coming up with ideas, proposals. Um, and I'm lucky to work at a place with a vast collection that would will satisfy yeah. that for a long time. That's an interesting idea. I mean, you know, one of my sort of bugaboos has often been the enormous fraction of museum collections that um, basically never go on view. And I wonder if this is a, a chance for museums to... Uh, as you suggest, to sort of look inward a little and maybe um, you know make a little a little more out of the the great collections that they have in their storage rooms. I think I think the you know we're going to be um, whether we want to do that or not. I, I I agree with you. I think it's a it's a, a nice opportunity to have that pressure and that constraint. Um, but we're going to be pushed into this uh, by virtue of just how expensive it is to do these big big loan shows. <laughs> And for a while now, I think you'll see more focus on on the collection. Yeah, and and in the meantime, what are you able to work on in in, in your own research? I mean, have you been? Because I, you know, I've had this experience. I also, you know, haven't been in the shop since March thirteenth. I think it was for us, and um, in some ways, of course, that's crippling. You know, we I, I can't look at objects in person. Um, and a lot of connoisseurial tools are basically broken when you can't handle a piece um, for yourself. But um, but I've actually been surprised at how much I still am able to do in terms of um, 
you know, online-based research. Um, a lot of research collections are available online, obviously. You know, a lot of primary source texts are available online. Um, and so I found, you know, I'm actually able to, to keep pretty busy um, with a lot of the same kinds of work that I was doing before. Um, has that been your experience as well? You you talk about the sort of the angst of being away from the art, but um, are, are you still able to engage with it in that way? Yeah, I mean, you're you're totally right. I think we're we're lucky to live in an age where so much has been digitized, and uh, including for me, um, and I'll, we'll talk more about this project I'm working on about South Carolina and ceramics. But there are all these um, newspapers from the 1840s, 50s, 60s from these rural towns in South Carolina, and you can find them and read them online. So I've been doing that. I will say though that you know one of the things I've um, kind of learned these last weeks is that we are a field that we really can't ever go fully work from home digital yeah. uh, online precisely for the reasons you say that you need to uh, be with the stuff and you know you can plan an exhibition only so far without assessing and seeing and seeing how big something is and what does this look like next to this and those are decisions that um, you know. I feel like our, our our world. We actually do need to be in 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 storage in the collections uh, with with the stuff. So it's it's been a real um, lesson reminder uh, for me of of uh, why we why we need to be on site uh, and in storage. And it's going to be exhilarating to go back. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure we're all going to have a new appreciation for that tactile experience. But so let's let's um, dive into uh, the subject du jour, um, and and this is actually you know it's such a fascinating subject because um, I, I often lament the fact that so many of the objects that um, I deal with in in my daily life, you know, of course as a silver dealer, I'm handling objects that were generally made for um, the creme de la creme of society. Uh, you know, only the wealthiest could really afford these objects, and and frankly, you know, a lot of uh, the great works of art and decorative art were made by rich people and for rich people. Um, that was, you know, the wealthiest can afford the best and the most talented want to make for the wealthiest. So that's sort of the way that that um, a lot of art and decorative art seems to go. But um, there are other areas of, of study in, in material culture that bring us, um, you know, into a little more grounding and uh, socioeconomically speaking, and um, y- you know what more dramatic example of that than a, a slave craftsman? <clears throat> um, so t- let's start out by just um, uh, you know getting a little sense for the the biography of this uh, this remarkable fellow, um, Dave. So what what do we actually know about him? Yeah, uh, so we know um, well. We're trying. We, the more the more you learn, the more you know what you don't know but what we know uh we 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 roughly know he was born in the um 1810s and dies uh sometime after 1870 uh we know that he spent most of his life his whole life in edgefield south carolina which is western uh kind of georgia south carolina border a a region famous for its natural clays um and we know uh places where he was enslaved, plant specific people um, who are listed as his owners and how that changes over time. Uh, we know a bit about his family who at, at, at one point tragically get sold away. 
And what we mostly know is uh, uh, his incredible um, output of uh, ceramics, most um, notably these large vessels where he signed his name and dated. Uh, and there are about 40 examples of um, signed, dated, uh, large-scale vessels distinguished remarkably with poetic verse, so short couplets. Yeah, so that gets into some to, to a really interesting aspect of um, of his biography, which is that um, he was literate, uh, which for a, a slave was a really unusual thing and actually a, an illegal thing um, throughout much of the South. Yeah, I mean, um, and, the, and yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, astonishingly. Um, I mean, we think we we're learning that more um, enslaved people were reading than we understood, mostly reading the Bible. But astonishingly, to your point, so 1834, uh, there's a law in uh, South Carolina state law that says um, if uh, reading and writing by a, a slave is subject to 50 lashes, it's, it's there in the books. Uh, there's a fear that um, literacy will lead to insurrection a fear that people could pass notes between one another. Uh, and that same year is the year of the first poem, the first Dave poem. So uh, hmm. pretty, pretty interesting coincidence, or maybe not a coincidence, but uh, the, the, the law, despite the law or in spite of the law, he spends, you know, the next uh, 30 years inscribing not pieces of paper that are ephemeral, but um, big stoneware vessels with words. And and the way that he learned to read, um, it, it seems like probably had um, something to do with the way that he learned to make pottery. Um, that is, you know, via his um, his owner, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of mythologies about this. We don't exactly know the answer. We know that um, the first person who he uh, worked for Harvey uh, uh, was was uh, an owner of a newspaper, a very short lived newspaper called the Edgefield Hive. And we know that um, there were enslaved people working in the newspaper business at this time laying type. So uh, we maybe could surmise that um, Dave had that role uh, and uh, maybe learned to read that way, although he could have learned from, you know, his parents or other other enslaved people around him. So it's hard to say. uh, But um, what uh, what where he goes with it, I think, is very distinctive. But so one way or another, he learns how to read, and he also learns how to make um, how to make pottery. Um, he is, of course, producing pottery for um, the benefit of his his owner. Uh, but he he does, um, he, you know, these are not sort of mass produced uh, cookie cutter objects. Um, they're pieces that have, um, you know, his hallmark um, on them. In some cases, literally his his mark, as you say, he he signs some of these pieces, and others have. Uh, poems on them and others are are uh, identifiable in other ways right yeah they're they're uh really one of the ways they're identifiable and in his time um you know there's a large ceramics industry in this region and uh tens of thousands of um pots being produced on an annual basis uh we can talk about that but he gets famous not for as much for the verse as for the size of his pot. So he's throwing the largest pots, you know, 20 up to 25, even even 30 gallon um, stoneware vessels. 
which means that he's on a kick wheel. So before electricity, he's throwing or raising up, you know, 70, 100 pounds of clay. And just the uh, virtuosity, when you talk to a ceramicist about these objects, you, you learn how difficult that is. Uh, and that's one of the other hallmarks is, is just the size um, of the vessels. So how, how big is a, a vessel that holds 30 gallons? So like the MFA example is uh, about two feet tall by, you know, 19 inches wide. Um, so they're kind of barrel size. Right. Wow. That's, that's you know, bigger than a, a keg at a frat party. Yeah, yeah, right. That's actually a great comparable. <laughs> and uh, so what? Yeah, they weren't. I don't think they were. They were, they were storing meat, not beer, but same idea. Uh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask. So these. So you say there are thousands of pots being produced in the in this region, and um, and presumably being distributed around uh, around the region, around the country. Um, how? How uh, widespread was the distribution for these pieces? Yeah, so, you know, we're in a world of uh, pre-refrigeration, pre-plastic, um, pre, uh, you know, you're used to dealing with uh, luxury storage material of silver, but uh, ceramics was the uh, kind of Tupperware of its day. So um, we know that these there are these huge cotton picking plantations in South Carolina, and to feed the labor force, uh, the enslaved labor force on those plantations, you know, vast quantities of food are needed and vast quantities of uh, ceramics to store that food. And so we're finding so, and they range in scale. You know, I'm talking about Dave, who is making the biggest um, pots, but they're they're um, syrup jars and butter churns and. Uh, small, you know, alcohol jars, like mm. smaller, smaller things too. And we find them, um, uh, Edgefield is the western side of South Carolina. It's on the Georgia border. We find them throughout northern Georgia. And then they're all the way across South Carolina in Charleston on the seacoast. Uh, and um, they've turned up um, uh, basically all around the state. The, the, the rise of the ceramics industry coincides with the rise of the railroad. And the um, transportation network is key to key to the the volume and output. Okay, so these pieces are being taken um, for commercial purposes on on trains, maybe to to places like Charleston, and then being used in in households there. Uh, households and in um, uh, kind of general store contexts. So uh, you'd be um, selling grain or selling meat in these vessels, and sometimes selling the vessel with the food. It's packaging, right? So, were that was was Dave sort of the only standout potter of this period of this region, or are there other artisans that we know by name? Yeah, we're we're uh, learning more about that, and there's been some great scholarship on um, who some of the other enslaved potters were. We know more about uh, the name of um, the competitors uh, in uh, who are the the white potters who we don't know this for sure, but likely we're not doing the work. So uh, Thomas Chandler's an example. He's a potter, but he also has uh, slaves throwing pots or uh, they're, 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 there's a Drake uh, potter. There are other potters in the orbit of Edgefield who are competitors. How much of, I mean, you know, I, I think of um, slavery as being largely an agricultural practice in, in um, antebellum South Carolina. 
but was this a fairly common arrangement for um, artisans and, and craftsmen to to employ um, large quantities of slave labor? Yeah, great question. So um, I'm working on this research project and future exhibition project with with my colleague at um, the Metropolitan, Adrian Spinozzi, and who's a curator of ceramics. And one of the big points that Adrian often makes uh, is that, just as you say, we, we never think of, um, we always think, we're, we're taught to think of agricultural slavery, but industrial slavery, which is what this is, uh, is not at the same scale, um, but it's still happening. There's iron working, there's ceramic making, there are slaves in furniture shops, there are slaves uh, working with painters uh, in, in the South and earlier in earlier periods in the North. So uh, it's, it's certainly there. We'll take a break and be right back with Ethan Lasser. First, just a reminder that you can see images of Dave's pots at themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. And uh, I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions at curiousobjectspodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Objective Interest. And uh, I give this reminder every episode, but I really mean it. It's a huge help to us if you open the app you're using to listen to this right now and leave a rating or a review. This helps others to find curious objects. Now, a word from our sponsor. Since 1805, Freeman's has been a part of the fabric of Philadelphia, helping generations of clients in the buying and selling of fine and decorative arts, jewelry, design, and more. Freeman's celebrates Pennsylvania's long-standing legacy as a major and influential artistic region and is committed to the craftsmanship and artistry of the Commonwealth. Whether it's a conoid bench, by George Nakashima, a Chippendale-carved side chair by Thomas Affleck, or a painting by Fern Coppage. Freeman's is renowned for selling works by important artists and designers from the Quaker state. Freeman's is always looking for and able to evaluate fine art, furniture, and decorative arts made and used in Pennsylvania from the earliest colonial period through the 20th century. Visit freemansauction.com to request a complimentary auction estimate or to speak with one of their specialists. Freeman's, Philadelphia's auction house. Sharing the world of art, design, and jewelry with you, wherever you are. So let, let's go back to um, to the objects themselves, these these pots and, and jars. Um, you say there are uh, 40 or so um, of, of Dave's pieces um, that are that are known. Did I hear that right? Well, there are 40 with uh, verse. So with, with his signature, with the date, with and with, okay. with the poems. There's yeah. even more more that have been attributed to him. And um, you, do you have any um, any idea where the the idea of putting verses on on uh, jars came from? Is this unique to him, or are there other uh, other examples of that? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there is no real um, clear answer. I think that the other uh, pottery being made in Edgefield and being kind of sold alongside this, the the other wares in the market, often have a maker's signature and sometimes um, a date and sometimes an inscription about where they're from. Uh, what Dave, uh, Dave Drake, that's the name he takes at the end of his life, does is take that convention and kind of flip it and extend it and exaggerate it. You know, the only, um, they're, they're, they're British pots from earlier periods with poetry. We don't think he had much access to those 
I tend to think of it as in a, a building on an extension of a, a convention of, of signing and uh, inscribing pots that um, is just taken in this whole other direction. Yeah, just adding his own sort of uh, unique personal touch to it. I, I'd love, if you have it handy, I'd love to hear some of the, the verses on, on some of these pots. Yeah, sure. I can, I can, uh, I can do that. Um, and for your, for your listeners, there's wonderful resources online. Speaking of online resources where all the poems have been compiled, but, uh, let's see, Excellent. They, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. They range in, um, tone from kind of, uh, loose, uh, humorous, um, jeering at someone to to poems that have more uh seriousness and uh acknowledge the lived experience of slavery so for example 1840 he says uh dave belongs to mr miles so he's acknowledging his condition uh where the oven bakes in the pot piles saying where he is or uh 1857 shortly after we think um or in reference to the as I mentioned, the selling of his of his uh, the separation from his family, uh, one of the most heartbreaking poems, is published uh, or inscribed. In, I wonder where is all my relations? He says, friendship to all in every nation. So just heartbreaking. I wonder where is all wow. my relations. Um, the one I'm most familiar with is at uh, the Museum of Fine Arts here here, and uh, where he says, um, 1857 again. I made this jar for cash kind of interesting to think about what that means uh though it's called lucre made this jar for cash right sorry it's not the cash doesn't go to him presumably so yeah wow gosh so these are really um in some cases very personal messages yeah we 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 uh think that um I think the more you get to know the, the the verse, the more you realize that uh, at a certain point, it's almost as if he understands that he's speaking as much to his own time as he is to the future, and um, these objects are are bearing witness to the uh, realities of of being enslaved, and you know seem to he seems to have like any any great writer, he seems to have an audience in mind beyond his own time. So th- this is just purely asking you to speculate but how do you imagine that um that people of his time who bought these pots how how do you think that they might have reacted to these verses um yeah i mean i I think you have to think about that and that's actually one of of the main things i've been trying to think about we know so much about how uh, in my own research we know so much about how uh these pots were made and um a lot of work in, into where the clay is coming from and how you actually physically you manipulate that much clay. We know much less, though, about your question, the reception. And, you know, I think that one of the marks of uh, Drake's kind of genius or intellect was the way that simultaneously he could kind of double speak. So he's saying one thing, or his verse reads one way to a white audience, to his enslavers, and a different way to uh, his mm. fellow uh, enslaved and you know he 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 always gave himself he always allowed his verses to be read as uh, you know um, empty of meaning or uh, they're full they're full of um, uh, spelling and punctuation errors which I think were a way of saying hey I'm not threatening uh, to you uh-huh. on the other hand um, at the same time they're 
uh, speaking in very serious tones, very serious ways to a community of enslaved who would, would have appreciated, uh, I think, the sentiment of the word. So they seem often to be pitching uh, two ways at once. One of the themes um, that you can follow through the verse is uh, kind of like any great artisan, um, Dave's kind of growing confidence. I made this jar is a line that's repeated a few a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh, great and noble jar, kind of uh, celebrating his own his own work. So that to me is a way of saying, um, you know, I may be owned by you, but you guys are contingent on me. Uh, so, which is yeah, a, right. a way that historians have spoken about um, enslaved artisans that they have uh, more of they they just have more power than um, say people picking cotton because often their their skill set and certainly in this case their skill set exceeds that of the uh, kind of white people around them. So Dave seems to be dancing that um, line as well. Right. It's not just a matter of of being able to produce an enormous amount of energy under duress, but actually having honed a, a sophisticated skill set. So um, what if, you know, what should I be on the lookout for if I'm, uh, if I'm wandering around South Car- Western South Carolina and popping into uh, antique shops um, and, it, and I want to find a pot by a, uh, by Dave the Potter, what should I be looking out for? Yeah, well, it's not a hypothetical because these things are, uh, you know, coming out of the uh, of the woodwork. Literally, there was one. Um, there new one. There seem to be new new examples on the market. Uh, an auction house um, called Crocker Farms uh, uh, seems to continuously be bringing these new examples to the market. Um, many of which uh, museums have been pursuing. But you know, they come. Yeah. Edgefield Stoneware comes in all shapes and sizes, and the, for every large jug selling for a six or seven figure number, the poem jugs are um, at that value now. There are, you know, more more smaller two gallon syrup jugs or uh, jugs for for grain or flour. And what you'll want to that are that are much more ubiquitous and um, as beautiful and much more affordable. That's sort of the other end of the the collecting market. And um, you'll look for for the shape. You'll look for an alkaline glaze. These they have these beautiful uh, glazes because they were you know, all local materials and wood fired. You'll look for um, uh, there's sometimes marks on them indicating their uh, capacity. So say two hash marks is two mm. gallons. Um, you'll look for uh, uh, I don't know a certain lack of uniformity because while this is an industrial scale operation, it's also all hand labor. So they're not uh, casting anything or uh, everything's made on the wheel. Uh, and one of the pleasures of engaging with this material. Uh, is reaching into a pot. Um, maybe you've had an experience like this with hammer marks and silver, but reaching into a pot and feeling the throw rings, um, and that's uh, right. with the fingerprints, and that's something I, I I look for too. But yeah, they're they're uh, um, certainly the the story is getting more and more known. So act fast. <laughs> is there is there a um, uh, a market for fakes? Yeah, at, I think, at this I mean, point, I has that it's evolved? interesting. There's there's um, even historically there's a sort of side uh, attrition which which Adrian, who I mentioned, knows um, quite a bit about of, of Edgefield face jugs, and they're small smaller vessels um, with orna- kind of ornamented to look to look like faces, and those are made uh, for 
two or three decades by enslaved people. And then we know in the um, late 1930s to early 20th century, white potters begin to kind of copy and make that form, which becomes mm. a bit of a symbol of the South. So there are even, you know, um, older objects that are, I don't know if that we call those fakes, but they're not exactly what one might think they are. That's interesting. It's uh, in, in a sense, sort of um, reclaiming a, uh, an imagined idea of a, of a certain Southern past. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah. I mean, I wonder, like, do, do you, do you have a sense for when, um, when his work starts to be recognized as, as his work and as, as being significant? Yeah, we, we, we do. We've, we've, um, learned about, uh, the early collecting of this material and, um, it is uh, really one one woman in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, who uh, is named Laura Bragg, who in the 30s uh, is working at the Charleston Museum and um, begins to take an interest in local South Carolina traditions. And uh, Laura Bragg discovers um, the big, some of the biggest Dave Dave jugs and uh, learns about learns from from um, ex or, or emancipated slaves who are still alive at that time who who this guy was and who 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 the dave on these pots is and uh begins to um argue for taking them seriously and acquire some for the charleston museum wow that's so i mean this is like in the 1930s you're talking about the sort of the very early stages of the flourishing of of cultural anthropology um and and it sounds like this laura bragg uh, woman is is doing what seems like actually some pretty sophisticated ethnographic work. Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. I I uh, hadn't thought. I, you know what what's what's driving her and what her education is are questions to to look into um, for sure. So tell me more about this um, this exhibit. I know it's the the timeline as with everything else is uncertain now, but um, but but what are you working on and and what are your goals for the show? Yeah, so uh, I'm working with Adrian at the Met for a project that uh, will open at the Met and um, then come to the MFA. And it will look, um, really introduce uh, people in our part of the country to the story for the first time, few of whom um, know about Edgefield or know about uh, the connection between slavery and ceramics. And so what we're trying to do is um, bring together both some of the great uh, works by by Dave Drake, some of the great poem jars, uh, but also um, works by some of the other potter, potters in his orbit. Um, some of those people I mentioned who were signing pots and pots uh, associated with other enslaved makers. And um, yeah, really trying to, to offer a, a story of some of the only works of art um, that we have that can be very definitively associated with um, slaves and made by slaves and uh, what does that mean and what does it mean to show them in an art museum and um, what can we take from them and uh, how do they how do they change our picture of what um, uh, slavery was about well that sounds like a very exciting show um, I'm, I'm sorry that it, to, it you know it may be some time before we're actually able to to go and visit the the exhibition yeah right now um, it's uh, it's 20 it's about two years out so 2022 right okay and uh 
I suppose we're presuming that uh, museums are going to be open by 2022. <laughs> fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. This is this is a, a totally fascinating subject, and I'm I'm thrilled to learn a bit more about it. Um, are there you know in the in the coming uh, months as we wait for our chance to to see this? Are there resources that you'd suggest for people um, who who are interested in learning more? Uh, yeah, there's there's let's see, there's um, a number of uh, important studies by ceramics uh, historians from South Carolina. Um, the, the kind of seminal book is called Great and Noble Jar uh, by Cinda Baldwin. And um, there are uh, a lot of material online about um, all of collecting all of the verse. Uh, and um, I've, I've learned a lot uh, or my own thinking about this maker has been informed by thinking about that other great, great writer uh, of this period, Frederick Douglass. And so um, reading reading uh, Douglas's autobiography, but also David Blight's biography of, of Douglas has been very helpful. Not that they knew each other, but mm. um, only to say they, they lived at the same time. And uh, at least Douglas comes from a, a Southern plantation, so has some of the same um, background. Yeah, if funnily enough, David Blight has actually been on Curious Objects before. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, yeah, friend of the podcast. Anyway, um, yeah, that's uh, that all sounds um, sounds quite interesting. Um, there's clearly a lot to dig into here. There are, you know, as always, we're going to po- post photos of the of some of these um, jars uh, on themagazineantiques.com slash podcast. Um, and uh, I hope we can find that um, that list of uh, verses that you mentioned and, and put that up uh, online as well. Um, so, uh, listeners, I, I hope you'll go and check those out. Um, and do look forward to this exhibition at the Met and the MFA Boston uh, in, uh, fingers crossed, 2022. So, Ethan Lather, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Great. Thank you. And uh, stay safe out there. be honest, it's a little lonely wrapping this up without Michael here, so um, let me just make a quick plug on my way out. Michael and I are still working together very closely over the New Antiquarians, which, uh, if you enjoy this podcast, is a group you should definitely be checking out. Um, And if you're craving more antiques content, I know you are, we are doing regular live events and presentations and panel discussions during quarantine over there at New Antiquarians. Best way to find us is on Instagram at New Antiquarians, where you can also sign up to get emails about upcoming events. Today's episode was edited and produced by Sammy Delati. Our music is by Trap Rabbit, and I'm Ben Miller.